I'm just going to take the opportunity here to welcome everyone to New Frontiers, Clubhouse Creator First Show. We are just getting started here. We're going to have some very interesting material today on the hashtag Free Britney movement. We're just waiting. Here's some music here and some clips that will introduce you to the topic. Owen, Earth to Owen, are you there? <laughs> I was wondering if it was on my end. Yeah, I'm not not hearing anything here. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Paul. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you great, Dr. Paul. Welcome. Yeah, great. I'll mute myself now. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Christopher Mooney. You hear me? Yes, and welcome to Clubhouse, Chris. We're just waiting to get started at the top of the hour. And there's Owen. Owen. Thanks. Now, are you hearing me? Loudly. Frontiers, that's a teaser for what we're discussing today. Toxic celebrity culture with a focus on Britney Spears. And now, our theme music. Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't uh, terribly dramatic. Boy therapy. That boy needs therapy. Lie down the couch. That's crazy when we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? 
logifex sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of psychedelics became right. A lot of the psychedelics became illegal. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Right. It's rubbish. Welcome to the show. The frontier psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. All right, welcome everyone to the Sphere Club and to New Frontiers, a clubhouse creator first show for pioneers on the frontiers of the mind and the media, with your hosts, the frontier psychiatrist Owen Muir and Carlene McMillan. I'm your MC and in house therapist, Jeremy Fox. Last week, we explored why the hashtag Free Britney movement matters as far as patient autonomy and alternatives to sweeping conservatorships for people living with mental illness. It also brought up a number of questions about how we as a society contribute to a toxic celebrity culture. So today, we wanted to hone in on that and talk more about it. So now, some brief housekeeping here. Please raise your hand or message in the new Clubhouse back channel if you'd like to contribute to the conversation. Also note, our multi-hyphenate co-host and sound engineer, Dr. Owen Muir, is recording today, so we can share recaps and audio clips. We have a giveaway today as well. If you text the word JOIN to AskSphere.club, you'll be entered to win a copy of Fragile Power by one of our panelists, Dr. Hope Meyer, and you will get reminders of future shows. So if you hear something interesting today, please tweet it out with the hashtag, hashtag AskSphere. We'll hear from our panel for the first 45 minutes or so, and then we're going to open it up to audience members. And then we'll wrap up the show with the last 15 or minutes so there with the Frontier Psychiatrists reflecting on what we've been discussing. So we'll do a recap there. All right. And with that, here's your host, Dr. Carlene McMillan. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. And thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, so I think every one of us can probably pretty quickly conjure up images of our favorite celebrities, um, particularly from our formative years. Um, and for many of us, I think those images turn really dark really fast. Um, for me, for example, that's Kurt Cobain. Um, as we've been examining the mess that Brittany has found herself in, um, there are so many themes that have emerged uh, around how more money oftentimes really just means more problems. And as a psychiatrist, the road to fame, from my perspective, seems to be paid with addictions, personality disorders, eating disorders, and unfortunately, sometimes early graves for so many of the folks that have traveled it. Um, so today I've brought together a group of folks who've basically seen it all when it comes to celebrity dirty laundry. And we have mental health and medical professionals who've worked with uh, celebrities, VIPs, high net worth individuals, um, and also at MTV VJ, who was uh, during, at MTV during the height of the Britney and boy band era. Um, we're going to introduce them as we hear from them. Um, but first, I just wanted us to get alert and oriented with a list of names. Um, as I read them, I just want everyone in the audience to and our panel to just focus on what you're thinking and feeling. All right, here we go. 
Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Elvis, Amy Winehouse, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Robin Williams, Prince, Avicii, Alexander McQueen, Chris Farley, Janis Joplin, River Phoenix, Princess Diana, Jim Morrison, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heath Ledger, Corey Monteith, John Belushi, Karen Carpenter, Jimi Hendrix, Elliot Smith, Chester Bennington, most recently DMX, and I could go on and on and on. Um, but I think that's a good start. So I want to turn to my co-host, fellow Frontier Psychiatrist, uh, Owen Muir. Owen, what was it like hearing that list? What did that kind of bring up for you? Uh, do you want words of the audio version? <laughs> either way. I'll take either or both. <laughs> Uh, it's a train wreck. Um, she's, those are all the people I liked. <laughs> like, like a lot of us liked. Yeah, like a lot of us liked. And, um, that's, that's a, that's a lot of bodies. And those are just the people who are like obvious and famous and we know. And there are, you know, thousands more people laying next to them in the ground who are deeply cared about. Um, the toll that all of this takes is, is, you know, it's a lot. What about for others on the panel? What did that list bring up for you? There's so much talent there lost. So many people who, if there had been more awareness of what was going on and more people in their life connected to them as individuals rather than celebrity, there could have been an aversion to some of these tragedies. Absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah, I'll chime in. It's sad. It's really sad. I think every one of those amazing talents that you just listed are people who could have probably impacted millions of more lives had they managed to get the right support at the right time. So it's sad. I'm, I'm curious, like, because we, you know, we, were, we started out talking about Brittany, and she's alive. That last clip in the intro was Brittany talking about her life now in a way that was positive. And it was on the 14th of this month. Although I think that, you know, I think it was actually from June. And I think part of that is, is that's the image, right? So she comes on to social media and puts that. But do we really know what's going on behind the scenes? And I think I've since learned that there's a lot more going on for her um, where she that's she's not actually, you know, as happy as that clip might uh, might entail. Um, so I think I'd like to start um, actually with Dr. Paul Hochemeyer. Um Dr. Paul, could you introduce yourself and a little bit about uh, your book, Fragile Power? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thank you for um, talking about this. It's a critically important topic and it's really, there's a lot of shadows around it. So my work is, um, well, I focus on celebrity identity constructs and my definition of a celebrity is a feature of a human being that denies them their humanness. And so we can think of celebrity in terms of celebrity in the traditional sense, uh, like Brittany. And, um, but celebrity is also manifested in other ways, a woman's beauty or a man's beauty, uh, our last name, the wealth that we hold. And so the defining feature of a celebrity is that it is, it is a feature that makes the person be viewed as an object. And as an object, the world uh, is 
compelled to manipulate them and to consume them in very destructive ways. So, you know, I started my career rather traditionally. I worked um, on the complete opposite end of the power bell curve, working in, in Hollywood at the free clinic, Sunset Hollywood Free Clinic, working with HIV-positive transgendered sex workers. So a very powerless, uh, disenfranchised population. Simultaneous with that work, I was uh, working, I, my prior life I was a lawyer and I was working as a concierge lawyer with one of America's wealthiest families in Holmby Hills, which is an elite section of Beverly Hills. And, and I saw that um, there was an enormous amount of self-destructive behavior. There was a, a young woman um, who was a crack addict and the family had tried to pull her out of crack houses and put her into recovery programs for time eternal and had just been throwing an enormous amounts of money at the problem. And what I observed uh, is that the money was actually compounding a lot of the problems and that the best help was definitely not the most expensive help, that the best help was culturally competent care that recognized the unique cultural features of this particular population. And so I went back to school and I did a master's degree in clinical psychology with family systems. And then I did my PhD looking at power identities and looking at how those identities manifest themselves on three levels of our existence. The first is interpersonally, how we view ourselves. The second is interpersonally. And then the third is social culturally. And I took that work into the field of addiction treatment and I've developed some programs around the world around cultural competency and clinical excellence and working with this population. And through that work, through my research, I've teased out three distinct cultural markers of this population which are isolation, suspiciousness of outsiders, and hyperagency, which is this capacity to control our world to avoid any discomfort. And that's the three markers of celebrity populations. And so our field, the field of behavioral health, for the most part, we've done an exceptional job of working with people who live in positions of powerlessness. There's very robust work around feminist theory, um, LGBT work in terms of minority stress. But there's been kind of a pushback in terms of working with other people, people who live in the world of positions of power. And so my work has been to to develop uh, robust clinical theories and a distinct clinical formulation to treat this particular population as a cultural competency. And all of that is in uh, my book, Fragile Power, which came out in October of last year. It's um, Hazelden published it. It's distributed around the world by Simon & Schuster. I think that concept of hyper-agency is a big one. Um, and I know that's something, I think, Michelle, you've had quite a bit of experience working in kind of the private rehab type scene. Um, and can you maybe just tell us a little bit about hi how hyper-agency kind of plays out when people are seeking health care? Yeah. Um, and let's just go back to what Dr. Paul said, right, the definition of Hyperagency, the capacity to control our world to avoid any discomfort. Um, and I think so one way you see that is, uh, yeah, so this like inability to tolerate any distress and even that can sometimes play out with staying with healthcare providers. Um, so it's just no next one, new one, like, and, and they've, cause that's just what they can do. They've created their world, you know, to avoid discomfort, but the thing about it is there are certain 
laws of this world that are more powerful than they're powerful, where eventually, you know, whether it's a, a cancer diagnosis, a, you know, I don't, eventually they have to be confronted with discomfort. Um, you know, a, a tolerance to the medication they've become addicted to, a father who, you know, is going to work no matter what. Um, and because, uh, you know, one of the downsides of wealth is they've developed no internal um, capacities to deal with deal deal with anything. And so you see kind of a, a crumbling of the ego pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, so to your question, how how it plays out in care, I mean, I can say how it plays out, you know, maybe in systems like a. I think Paul, you are so like seminal to to what I know about this population, how how and how I've come to not otherize this population. You know, um, you know, I am someone who grew up in Occupy Wall Street, like hashtag eat eat the rich. And I think um, Paul, listening to your work was the first time my mind completely shifted and my heart opened to be it to be able to see. And then, you know, also, um, it was your work paired with kind of like a St. Francis of Assisi's, uh, draw closer to suffering, right? When you, when you draw closer to the people who are suffering, that's how you can actually see them and humanize them. So like working alongside celebrities and actually seeing how sick they were. Um, and then paired with Paul, just your language and, and your clinical theories around them really opened to my eyes open to my eyes and maybe Carlene, this is a little off to what you're saying, but how the system we've created and toxic celebrity culture being part of that, it doesn't work for anyone, right? It doesn't work for the poor. It's also not really working out for the rich. And that story is not really being told. And Paul, as you were saying in any meaningful way, um, but in terms of their care, I think also what Paul was saying, it's not necessarily uh, money that buys good care. And, and that was like a really weird lesson to learn as I worked in these places, I charged $80,000 a month to be at. And I, the care, the people working there was good, but the care, it, it was really odd what was happening. Yeah. It seems like the extremes of the continuum from poverty to extreme wealth, that's where you start to see like just real distortions in how people get, get help. Um, and I think that's what we see in our clinical practice as well. It's kind of everyone in the middle, you know, they make appointments, they typically show up to those appointments, they listen sort of to what the doctor's saying, right? There's sort of parameters that we operate. And there is, I think, a, a line in Paul's book about somebody um, you know, trying to make an appointment um, and, and didn't want to set an alarm because alarm is for small people, um, right? That, that, you know, those type of things just sort of fall out the window when your life is like being lived on these sort of margins of society and it's I think it's really hard for people to relate unless they're in that position which you know very few of us very few of us are in um, I know John has um, you know thought a lot and, and interacted a lot with this so-called sort of VIP healthcare stuff um, and how that oftentimes leads to worse care for these individuals so John maybe could you just kind of introduce yourself and what you do and and just your sort of initial thoughts about how the sort of ultra wealthy celebrities are interacting with trying to get help for mental and medical problems yeah, thank you, Dr. McMillan. And um, I couldn't agree more with what Dr. Paul said. And 
uh, my firm, Better Health Advisors, uh, helps um, high net worth individuals and celebrities uh, across the country navigate and manage their care. Um, and we have um, many clients uh, who are uh, in in this in this space. And you know, fr- from my perspective, um, you know, celebrities have uh, an automatic stressful lifestyle. Uh, it's inherent in this kind of work. And you know, one's um, sense of of well being. Um, and financial success is yes. dependent on, uh, it's dependent on how often, how depend on how, how they perform each time. And it's dependent on how others react to their performance. And that brings great stress and, and great vulnerability. And it also, the kind of work that they're doing lends itself to highs and lows. And, you know, you have a great performance, you're over the top, you, you're high, you have bad performance, you're low. And, and, but, but, but then, you know, often someone will use an external stimulant to bring back to equilibrium because, you know, you get really high from performance. How do you come down? You get really low. How do you come up? And, you know, often others who are in different occupations don't have this, this state. They often live in a more um, even equilibrium state. So, you know, that, that's, I think, one of the inherent challenges um, of individuals with, with mental health because uh, there's great stress and, and great vulnerability. Um, plus, you know, as, you know, Dr. Paul was saying, uh, often individuals, um, uh, celebrities are, are targets, um, for, uh, people to take advantage of them. And I think we've, we've seen that, um, uh, you know, unfortunately. Hey, this is, uh, Jeremy Fox here. I'm, I'm wondering this kind of chicken or the egg conundrum with celebrity personality disorders and traits like hyper agency, right? And how those are kindled. Like maybe those kind of things gave rise to celebrity status, right? But then they become kind of super accentuated as it goes on by the environment and then et cetera, et cetera. If anybody in the panel had thoughts about that. Yeah. So like, I think Jeremy, the idea, like sometimes people say, oh, well, all celebrities are are narcissists. And like, did they, I don't think that's true, but like, did, did the narcissism, is it an emergent property of being in that role or did people that are predisposed to be narcissistic um, find their way in these positions. Um, I don't know. Dr. Paul, would you want to comment on that a little bit? Well, sure. To the first piece about narcissism. And, you know, look, narcissism has become a hackney term in our society and our culture, and we throw it around kind of recklessly. And we know clinically, this panel knows that narcissism occurs on the spectrum, right, from adaptive to pathological. And so... Does celebrity cause narcissism? No, I think it's like the Internet. Does the Internet, does social media cause narcissism? The studies that have looked at it have said no, but it certainly provides a great platform for people with narcissistic traits to display them. And I think the same holds true for celebrities. Look, to attain the level of success that these people, for Britney Spears to attain the level of success that she's attained, she had to work be disciplined, be talented, have great interpersonal skills. So we're talking black swan levels of success, right? So to get there, you don't get there by kind of being soft and warm and fuzzy. You have to be extraordinarily driven. And so, you know, typically if we look at the clinical definition of narcissism, narcissism is a result of a person being profoundly injured early in their developmental path. And the lesson that they learned from an adaptive standpoint is that 
people are unsafe. Uh, qualitative aspects of life are unsafe and unreliable, but quantitative aspects, money, power, fame, fortune, those I can measure and those are, those are much more reliable. So, so I don't think that, you know, celebrity per se causes it. And as to the question of, um, hyperagency, you know, certainly people get more coddled as they go along and they're, they're, they become more isolated. You know, all of these things work together. The isolation, the suspiciousness of outsider and the hyperagency works together. And, and I think in terms of where we need to go as a profession is that, you know, like we can understand the ideology of the problem, but, but our field has a responsibility to come up with a solution and to figure out how we can deliver services that meet these people and those cultural markers. And when, uh, like Michelle was talking, when we think about what, and I talk about this in my book, what are we asking people to do when they come into any sort of therapeutic relationship? Come outside of their isolation, connect with another human being, share their psychic pain, and, um, you know, become every, so, so what we're asking a patient to do of, at any level of the socioeconomic spectrum is to cut against every single one of those cultural markers. But for, for people of power and celebrity, those cultural markers define their very essence. So traditionally the way that psycho, psychotherapeutic services have been delivered runs against every single one of those cultural markers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and you know, and and like John was saying, you know, the stories are just legion. There was another. There's a big article in the Hollywood Reporter that just came out about a, a halfway house in Hollywood that um, is just replete with with all sorts of horror stories that was catering to celebrities. And so, so again, well, we can know. I, can, I, the, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. In the beginning, you said uh, injury, right? Early injury. Right. Um, is the Mickey Mouse Club that injury factory? You know, chill, child celebrities don't have the capacity, right? They're 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 in a hyper. Their brain, they're all sort of um, neuro networking, right? So they're not really. Their prefrontal cortex hasn't come online, and so this is why child celebrities suffer at higher levels yes. because they they really don't have the prefrontal cortex. They don't have the executive functioning. I went to the Taft School for high school, uh-huh. and from age 14 on, I was a day student, but with essentially the scions of powerful houses, people whose last names I recognized, or at least the companies their family ran recognized. And I was in this super weird position where, like, my friend Joe, who is from New Milford, Connecticut, and a really smart kid, was wearing a T-shirt he got from a thrift store that said Alaska. And one of our classmates said to him, Oh, is that where your family has an, has your second home? Um, and with like no sense that that might not be the most accurate question. Um, and what I saw among my classmates was like unlimited drug problems. Mm-hmm. So it seems like I mean, it's a kind of celebrity in your definition. How do we understand those institutions? Well, I think first of all, you have to look at causation and correlation. And so I think that, the, you know, wealth, does not cause addiction per se. And so I think also in terms of, you know, that there's this, there's a bit of a kind of a hostility in terms of saying that we're expecting the person at Taft 
who comes from a, of, of a place of position to be able to empathize with somebody outside of his world. And, and, and we need to recognize that, you know, that's their world and that's their limited view of the world. And so we need to honor that and just recognize that as a truth as opposed to putting some sort of judgment. Because the minute that we get into judgment around it, A, we're going to lose the patient because they're going to intuitively feel that. And B, we're not really practicing empathy because is empathy something that we can assign a quantitative value to, to? So, or in compassion? So I think everybody on this discussion views themselves as an empathetic, compassionate person. So does does compassion have an economic threshold? So if I'm worth, you know, a million dollars, do I deserve compassion? And or if I'm below that, don't I? I think everybody on every point of the economic spectrum deserves compassion and empathy. I'm afraid our time is up. <laughs> Jeremy, yes, uh, this is a great time to remind everyone that we are here in the Sphere Club, the shape of what's next in mental health, and you're joining us for New Frontiers, a Clubhouse creator first show for pioneers on the frontiers of the mind and the media, hosted by the frontier psychiatrists, doctors Carlene and Owen. So we're talking about the toxic culture of celebrity with a focus on Britney Spears, with a panel uh, of mental health and medical pros to the stars and a former MTV VJ. Hold on, I'm going to introduce him in a minute. We are recording today and to get notified of podcasts recaps and upcoming rooms, as well as be entered for a chance to win a copy of the book Fragile Power, text JOIN to AskSphere.club. We encourage you to tweet out highlights from today using hashtag AskSphere. I want to remind everyone that we're about 30 minutes in here and about 45 minutes in, we're going to start to take audience questions. So um, without further ado, I want to toss to uh, Caduce. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, you are. It's a tricky one. So I uh, admire your attempt. <laughs> it's, it's actually on point. Uh, so I just want to just echo what uh, Dr. Paul shared earlier, because those three markers, and I'll highlight the one that I thought stuck out the most and has been true for my experience with a lot of the celebrities I've been around, uh, which is the, the isolation piece. And for as many celebrities as we see in the headlines not doing well, with celebrity, there are celebrities that also manage to navigate it. And I see the big differentiator being the ones that are navigating it with grace and able to mature normally and develop like we all do. Uh, it's the community that they keep around them that makes the difference. And what I saw with Brittany was the community that was around her was a lot of her family and people who could make a lot of money off of her and, and her family could make a lot of money off of her too. And that was also a meshed and unhealthy to, to see play out. And, um, you know, someone like Justin Timberlake, who obviously has gotten some heat since the documentary came out. Uh, but for what it's worth, you know, I've, I've bumped into Justin a lot over the years and he's always seeming very well adjusted. And I can point to a couple of people in a circle that I know personally as well, uh, that are very grounded and are unaffected by his celebrity and fame. Um, they could do just as well without him in their circle. And, and that's the type of, of, of people that he surrounded himself with. So, so that's a huge factor. It's a huge differentiator. So I used to work at Sony music studios as my first job out of college, actually. And we would have entire, like the, when the Beyonce record was done, like I got, I, I got fired after I replaced her entire fridge with Pepsi products when they fired a thousand people in one day. But, 
um, everyone would come into the studio with like, a, like their whole crew. Like Lil' Cam would roll in with like 20 people, and it seems like trying to have the right people around you as someone with that level of fame is a little bit like being honey and not being surrounded by bees. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I also want to bring Chris into the conversation, too, because I think when Chris and I worked together at this program called Ellenhorn, which is a, it's a private assertive community treatment team, and we'd often work with um, really high net worth people, including celebrities or, you know, there would be like a parent who would, you know, a parent who's a celebrity having a child who was quite mentally ill. And one thing I noticed was that a lot of these individuals, unfortunately, had these, I guess, like hornets, as you would say, oh, and around. They, they had somebody in their entourage that was just really destructive really quite toxic or multiple somebodies could be family could be agents could be just some random friend that always seems to be there bringing cocaine for no reason you know I I don't know Chris could you could you maybe just kind of introduce yourself and comment a little bit about kind of your your experience in this sort of rarefied treating celebrity air good to see you Chris you too. Yes, thank uh, you for joining Clubhouse for this. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited. This is this is amazing and 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 something I feel really passionate about too because I think this is this is actually a group of people who are grossly underserved uh, or misserved with with mental health treatment. Um, uh, my name is Christopher Mooney. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've worked in um, inpatient, outpatient rehabs, community-based programs, and private practice. Um, you know, from Medicaid-based treatment all the way through high-end celebrity, high-net-worth uh, families. Um, I think I think what we're looking at here, and what I what I the common thread in in in, in the space here is um, is this loneliness, right? This this sense of um, of not belonging, maybe that uh, that Dr. Paul was touching on before, and, and Kudas was um, kind of like mentioning here, like the people we surround ourselves with, and and. And what I have seen over over the years, whether it's with substance abuse or just you know all this maladaptive behavior and acting out and and poor decision making, is that the people that are suffering have they they don't have an idea of who they are, right? There's a real kind of um, breakdown of like their existential identity and and this idea of like what's important to them. And I think that it becomes very easy then for for uh, you know, for the, for those bees to be attracted to that honey, right? And, and, and it feels like, oh, these people get me. They're there for me. They're, they're always there. There's always, they're always ready to do something with me, right? There's, there's always somebody who has the cocaine or has the party or the next thing we're supposed to go do. And I think on the surface, it feels to, to, um, to the celebrity that like, hey, this is, this feels good. I feel like this person's there for me and I feel a connection. But when you when you really dig down just below the surface, it's it's not. And and I don't and I think things are moving so fast for them that they really don't have the ability to to assess that and say, oh no, maybe this isn't the person that I need in my life, or maybe this isn't the thing that I need to be going uh, to do right now. And and I think it really has to do with that profound. Check about that for a second. Because one one of the things that that strikes me is that. For a lot of these individuals who have essentially infinite resources, relatively speaking, they also have the ability not only to attract people but to dismiss them yes. with ease. And so one of the things about being a psychiatrist is that, like, more or less, they're, we're a relatively limited resource, and, like, getting a new one is hard. And so most people, when the going gets tough, well, like, you know, kind of have a difficult decision to make about how – and for celebrities, it's not the case. 
they could be done with me dead. Right? And they can find someone yeah. else the next day who's willing to give them more Xanax than I was, which is none. Well, I think that's the trick is how do you how do you set those limits and be a real person and, and set boundaries and actually have a real relationship? And that's really tricky. And I think one of the things I would see is people coming to us at Ellen Horn or in our practice now who have a, a basically a, a psychiatrist who's sort of just prescribing high dose benzos, clonopin, Xanax, et cetera, um, and, and calling that kind of treatment. And I get the pressures that like led to that. Um, but it's oftentimes like woefully inadequate and not something that we would stand for, for, you know, most of the people walking in our, in our office. But it's, you know, if you don't do that, then you're fired. They'll find, they'll find someone else. There's always another way. Also, I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers, we did a room with, uh, Dr. Amen, who treats a lot of celebrities, and he mentioned he worked with someone specific. I thought it was so strange because, like, in no regular world would a regular psychiatrist who doesn't, like, isn't a celebrity themselves talk about a specific client, and yet it was normative in that context, and I just didn't know what to make of it. Well, it's like that. that's also, like, I think sometimes people that are in those celebrity positions will actually give their uh, doctor permission because like it's also to reduce stigma right so like if they come out and say that they're in treatment that's a benefit but they shouldn't feel like they have to right I think one of the things Brittany talked about was that they were having her go to therapy in sort of a very public area where there's like a lot of paparazzi and that's very violating and intrusive most people don't want you know them going to therapy to be like you know a page six item um, but unfortunately it can be it can become that Dr. Carlene, did you have a question you wanted to ask on top of that? I do. I have, actually have a lot of questions for uh, for uh, Kudis because his experience is so uh, so unique. And I think, you, you know, you mentioned that uh, Justin Timberlake seemed to be, all things considered, rel- relatively well adapted. Um, I was wondering in terms of what you saw in the late, two, late 90s, early 2000s, in terms of how the MTV VJs and other people would sort of treat women versus men treat treat uh, teenage girls young women uh versus kind of the men were coming through because i i know that a lot of that has kind of come out around britney that you know she she was asked things that you'd never ask justin for example any any thoughts on that yeah i mean there's there was a lot there at that time i think uh hip-hop was was even more misogynistic than it is now if you can believe that uh, so, so there was a lot happening in the zeitgeist that, uh, was not favorable to the empowerment of women. And it was just so, so part of the culture that there, there weren't even a lot of people critiquing that sort of hip hop. I think Oprah came out and said something negative about hip hop, but that's the only person I can think of that had anything critical to say about what was going on in the lyrics. And, uh, for sure on, on, on the studio floor at MTV, there, there was, uh, a respect. Uh, I, I didn't see anybody get objectified explicitly, but I certainly saw the result of the culture on the stage whenever we threw to an artist who decided to, you know, wear what they would wear at a strip club. And then the argument is, well, that's my body. I do what I want with it, you know, but then it sort of perpetuates some of what we look at as misogyny in, in hip hop lyrics. So, you know, there's a lot there to be said about how pop culture expects a certain sort of a glamour and a, a sensationalism. And, you know, there's there's not a lot of pop stars that manage to, to go without objectifying themselves. 
So, so that, that's just a critique on, on the culture in general that, that we need that out of our pop stars for the most part. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, insider stuff, I, I mean, I would see stuff quite a bit uh, in, in the hallways that, that just felt like a party. It just felt a little reckless at times and uh, people would be passing around, you know, drinks at a New Year's Eve special and, and you know, things were probably said that I didn't hear, but I, I, I didn't see a whole heck of a lot of that from the MTV team at least. Uh, but I could go on and on about other stuff that I saw for sure. Do you think it's, oh, oh go ahead. I, I, so for, for those who don't know, there are people in the music industry, artist and repertoire, right? A and R. And those things are separate oftentimes for pop stars historically. So they pick the artists and then they pick the music that those artists are going to make their tunes. Were those people essentially, I mean, what were they picking? What were the qualities they were picking for that you noticed in the artists? Well, I've got a unique perspective on that because I was also uh, A&R at MySpace Records slash Interscope for about four years after I left MTV. So uh, I could tell you, I mean, the conversations we had in those in those meetings where we looked at a Christina Milian, for example, to sign her and, and you know, her image was a part of the package for sure. Uh, so the particular A&R in the building who was advocating for her was not really standing on the platform of listen to her amazing vocals. <laughs> he was pointing to look at how sexy she is. Uh, and, and that was, that was the merit of his argument. So, and, and it's arguable, right? I mean, because if you look at the results on the charts, some people get away with not being particularly great vocalists, but they, they play the game well. Um, and, and that's, that's the big underlining thing too with this, this whole conversation is this sort of game of celebrity. And all of the people that are complicit in that, right? We can't just isolate celebrities as the issue. We have an entire culture that is actually cooperating in what we're talking about here. You know, we, we watch shows and give them ratings. And then sometimes we, we feel shocked or appalled at what happens as a result of giving that show ratings and the damage that is caused by the, the reckless reporting or whatever is in that show, the sensationalism that skews the reality. And that's my direct question, essentially, about the role of those individuals, and you were one of them. I know yeah. in reality TV there are producers who will talk about the ratio of borderline personality disorder to narcissistic personality disorder being three to one that makes a good show. Were you mm -hmm. intentionally either told or looking for people who were likely to, you know – cause drama or have problems that would basically play well to paparazzi. I've been, a, I've been in a lot. I mean, I've been in so many conversations with so many producers and that was a lot of times the, the barometer for whether something would make it to air is, does it have the drama? Um, a couple of entertainment news shows that I worked for uh, explicitly asked me to ask questions about the personal drama of certain stars that I interviewed, even though their publicist asked not to have those questions be asked. So like we're, we're talking about a medium that's been compromised by, by the very foundation of it. You, know, you got to keep up with the Joneses. And so, so the game is sort of like clickbait by any means necessary. And they're good people in the media industry, but by, by no means are they exempt from the game. The, the game is ultimately to, to get the clicks. So it, it sort of debased the entire ideal of journalism when we look at it. And it's very few outlets that have managed to go unscathed. So, I mean, as far as your direct question, like, absolutely. I definitely heard people uh, very, very, very reductively 
objectify people and put them in a box and say, are they sensationalistic enough? Are they dramatic enough? Nobody was asking, are they authentic enough? <laughs> it was like, are they going to render the ratings was always the bottom line. Right. Like, you know, well-adjusted, rational people who integrate dialectical viewpoints is not good, is not good TV. And it, it, it seemed like the reality shows they, they try to skate that line, right? They don't, they don't actually want one of the people on the reality show to, to die, right? Or they don't want that person to kill anybody. But like, close would be good, it seems like. And that seems like a very hard line to walk. And um, I'm actually extremely interested to hear one of the folks that we have here up on stage um, is actually uh, Jim Nickerson, who who I think runs, or at least one of the leaders of the cl very popular Club Bravo here on Clubhouse, um, which, you know, they, I think they, they know a thing or two about that. So, so James, any kind of thoughts from you as, as you listen to us talking about our sort of clinical lens as we look at these shows? Yeah, thank you for having me. Stop coming. I'm like bounded by all the people around. Probably here. I think you're in the the Bravo Matrix. There, can you get a better reception? <laughs> That's a little better now, I think. Uh, is that any better? Yes, yes. Okay, great. I will stand right where I am. Um, you know, I feel very honored to be around such smart people. I'm just a guy who uh, happens to watch a lot of reality TV. And uh, my friend Dave Quinn and I uh, run Club Bravo. And uh, Dave's an entertainment journalist. And uh, we get a lot of Bravo celebrities that come into Club Bravo rooms. Um, Bravo celebrities, I, I like that. <laughs> well, and right, they coined the term, right? I think it's really interesting to talk about production and who's doing the producing, uh, the, the teams at Evolution and at Magical Elves. You know, I don't have insight into the type of characteristics they're looking for, uh, but they definitely are looking for people who uh, bring the drama, their public statements, and as far as uh, how they're looking to cast for reality shows, specifically Housewives, um, are people who are groups of friends. Um, but I just watched um, an after Bravo a session of Eileen Davidson last night, who I think is a young and restless soap star, but also is a real housewife of Beverly Hills. And something she said that pertains to this conversation is one of the reasons she didn't fit into that group was because she is a type of person that tries to dispel drama and not cause it. Um, working with the Bravo celebrities, I think, you know, there's, there's just this, I won't be long. There's just two other things I want to say, you know, it's very interesting to watch uh, these Bravo celebrities and their families. I'm thinking specifically, say, of, uh, of Teresa Giudice, uh, who both her and her husband were both jailed at separate times and watching their children grow up in the, uh, in the underneath parents whose, uh, reality TV status is their income, uh, and to watch them become the parents. And I just want to share a tip that, uh, my friend Dave Quinn, who is my co-admin at Club Bravo, uh, shares with everyone. Dave, uh, my friend Dave has talked to over 150 real housewives in the last year. Oh, my God. And I, and I know your first thing is like, oh, my God, there's 150 housewives. And he, yes, there's at least those. He's, uh, he's writing a seminal book, The Oral History of the Real Housewives. And the number one thing, piece of advice he gives to every housewife, and the number one piece of advice that is constantly ignored 
And the number one piece of advice that people say, I wish I would have followed is do not believe what people say on social media that love you and do not believe what people say on social media that hate you. His number one piece of advice is outsource your social media function and get on with your life. And, and the last thing I want to say is, um, as a person living in long-term recovery, uh, I followed the path of Bronwyn Wyndham Burke on Real Housewives of Orange County. And, uh, this is, this, I'm adding this in because it's important to me. Uh, addiction and sobriety on alcoholism are terms that are very often weaponized in reality TV culture. And, uh, the first, um, the first person I saw that went through a true first year of sobriety in my experience that really made me feel, gosh, I was there with her at that time, uh, was this woman named Bronda Windenberg. She has since left the show. Um, and Dr. Carlene, I hope I wasn't too all over the place, but that, those are my insights. And thank you for inviting me to be a part of this very uh, august group. Well, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, I understand your 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 club is very popular here on this app, which I think speaks to just that people watch this. And like, I don't really watch much TV, um, you know, but, but like reality TV. But I when I go to like the, the nail salon, they have it on. And if they don't have have the housewives on, I, I feel sad. <laughs> like, I want to watch it. Right. There's just something about it that uh, all of us seem to just, I don't know, see ourselves in some way or or, or see, see not ourselves and then have that sort of schadenfreude feeling owen yeah it's just uh, the pressure to be at your worst or to have it edited to appear that way um and then have the world comment on it i mean i've had people hate on me on the interwebs and it is deeply unpleasant. I had one dude jump out at me once to take a picture behind a car, and I, like, hid out for three goddamn days. And I see the video of Brittany, and it's just, like, in so many camera clicks that I literally couldn't use the audio because it was too much of a mess for the beginning of the show. And that's normative for celebrities, which is not normative for anybody, would be my argument. It is, like, a tool to drive you mad. This is a great time to hop in and do a reset here that we're in the Sphere Club, Shape of What's Next in Mental Health. This is New Frontiers, Clubhouse created for a show hosted by the Frontier Psychiatrist, Dr. Colleen and Dr. Owen. Okay, so we're continuing our great discussion on toxic culture celebrity, focusing on Britney Spears with our panel here of health and medical pros to the stars and, of course, a former MTV VJ. So we're recording today. There's a general reminder of that, as well as the fact that you could win a chance to, excuse me, you could uh, win a copy of the book Fragile Power if you text the word join to asksphere.club. And we are now at a point where we want to take some audience questions. So I want to see uh, if Steve has something to ask. I see he's first in line here, I believe. Well, I think we have uh, actually Nidhi. Nidhi uh, is a good, oh. uh, a good friend of the show and uh, invited, her, invited her up. So, Nidhi, as you're listening to this, any kind of questions or, or comments? Yeah, well, first off, thank you so much for uh, in- inviting me up here. This is always a great conversation. And, um, you know, I think that one of the things that I'm taking away, of course, is, you know, the unique pressures that celebrities face and, and how intense it can be to have no privacy whatsoever. You know, it's been um, I'm, I fully acknowledge I am a reality TV fanatic. Like, I love watching reality TV. Uh, 90 Day Fiance, James, I come to, you know, Club Bravo for the Family Karma recaps. Right. I mean, I just 
just really enjoy it. But you have to think about as you're watching as the viewer um, how disruptive this must be, right, to have the pressure to have drama in your life or have to, you know, always be um, under the public's eye. So, you know, I just think it's a it's been a really interesting uh, discussion thus far. And, you know, I really appreciated hearing uh, Kadusha's um, uh, uh, insights as a VJ. Um, and I'm curious to hear, you know, from your perspective, you know, do the VJs even experience some of this? Like, I can imagine during those years, right, that you were a part of MTV, um, as you're working with celebrities, was this something that you actually had to go through as well? Um, just would love to hear your insights. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure nobody who ever lives in the public eye goes unscathed on some level. I certainly didn't get it nearly to the degree of Brittany, but yeah, it felt a bit like a Truman Show at times, and I remember uh, distinctly there was one woman I went on a lunch date with, and we didn't do anything beyond that. I wasn't particularly inspired by our time together, so we never hung out like that again privately, but then she went on to tell everybody that we you know, had all the sex and all that. It, it, it's just an odd thing. You know, it's, it's normally the other way around, right? It's a douchey guy that goes around telling everybody how – he had his way with this woman, but it was the other way around. And I can't imagine that would happen to me if I wasn't on television, right? It wouldn't be remarkable. Um, but, but that's the type of thing that can happen. And it, and it certainly has a way of, of skewing one to be a bit more concerned about who they're around and who they should trust. And so that goes to the whole isolation piece, which I've gone through as well, where I felt like there wasn't anybody I could share with that could relate. Uh, you know, certainly, felt like I was in a bit of a, a, a weird spot, and, and I had a lot of challenges, actually. Um, even as recently as a few years ago, uh, when, when I started to think about some of the ramifications of my decisions and the public view of it, and, and I think that was because of not necessarily being still in the public eye, but almost like a habit pattern that my mind had gotten because I'd been in the public eye so much. Uh, so, so that's something for, for, the, for everybody to discuss is, like, to what degree can, can that – uh, that hyper agency and isolation be unraveled, and, and what do we see as a best practice for that? I actually have a question for you about about this sort of because you're not, you know, MTV isn't what it used to be, and you're kind of at a different point in your life. How do you think about your own celebrity and fame now? Like, what what do you want? Like in an ideal world, um, because I feel like there's sometimes we get into this dichotomy of like people forsaking it, and I think Dr. Paul's written about this as well, like. Can you can you be happy with some degree of fame and fortune and all of that? Or do people need to really go like totally into that that other direction and, and go, you know, house in the country off the grid? Well, my house isn't quite in the country, but it's definitely not too much in the city. I'm, I'm in Boulder, Colorado right now, and it's certainly not the, the streets of Hollywood where I used to roam. Uh, so I think environment is huge, and it definitely is, is, is helpful to, to not be in a culture that's so fixated on celebrity as a measure for success. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, uh, – it's something I don't really think about that much anymore. Honestly, I'm, I'm involved in, in a different sort of a world where it's more around personal development. Uh, I'm, I'm a facilitator of leadership trainings now. And, and that's always the piece of, of celebrity that I'm always interested in is, is it could be a real uh, leverage point for impact and, and for making a difference. And, and I think that's what we see on the upside of celebrity is 
using platforms to bring attention to things that matter, like a George Clooney, for example, constantly advocating for important things that we all need to pay attention to. So I don't think of celebrity as this sort of one thing, this this note of like doom and gloom. If you get to a certain point in the zeitgeist, like what goes up must come down. There's a lot of shades of gray in there, too, and a lot of ways to wield that power. Well, so I, you know, I, if it's okay, I just, I had a thought that kind of came to me as you were speaking, Kadush, because it, it sounds like almost it's, it was traumatic for, I think, a lot of people in a way to, to now have to go through a situation where there you have to do impression management and make decisions, uh, based off of what people may think about you because of your role, right, as a celebrity. Um, but then those residual effects, right, like that hypervigilance, that feeling of being on edge, uh, you know, having to kind of look over your shoulder, see who you're surrounding yourself with. It almost sounds like it's a little bit of that type of response, not nearly to the extent, right, that we would maybe think about a traditional trauma reaction but you know just dysregulation almost in a way of our nervous system so i just thought that that was a really salient point and i appreciate you sharing um you know your personal perspective there thank you so much yeah of course and, and like meta point not for nothing about clubhouse there are you know 400 300 odd people at a time in this room because like steph jumped on stage and then we blew up and we're having an awesome conversation and people are hanging but like nitty like before this, you were a therapist who was a good therapist, I imagine, but you didn't have 10,000 people in a night listening to what you had to say, and now you do. And that may be like D-list internet celebrity, but it's not nothing. And now what you say, people like literally like take notes on. And do you feel any of that yourself, or is there something about Clubhouse that makes it more palatable to you? Ooh, that's such a great question, Owen. Thank you so much, first of all, for even uh, bringing me into this conversation in terms of influence, because I, you know, I, I definitely didn't really have that same level of influence before joining Clubhouse, and it has been quite overwhelming. I can't deny it, and, and I'm sure you and, and Dr. Carlene can relate uh, too. You know, you you get inundated by uh, people reaching out, which is so heartwarming, but that feels overwhelming. And wanting to present yourself, um, you know, as who you are, right? Like. I always want to show up as like the person that I am, but also knowing that if there's 10,000 people I'm speaking to, right, I really want to be uh, very intentional about the message I'm putting out there and creating a platform where you're shifting narratives around mental health definitely can sometimes get some kickback right from people too. So it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, and it was really interesting just being kind of thrust into a position of being an influencer. I absolutely love it, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to influence. But yes, it does kind of come with its own toll. And there have been times where perhaps I've been like bullied on a stage and I had to process it with my therapist or I've had to kind of deal with, um, you know, difficult situations and uh, that those residual effects kind of stay with you. So I really appreciate, you, you know, you even viewing me that way. But I would say the same for you and Dr. Carlene, and I would love to hear your thoughts as well. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Owen and I will talk about that when we get to our little reflection piece. But um, I think, you know, I'm actually curious for Dr. Paul along those lines, like you, you're talking in Fragile Power about kind of the use of technology uh, social media to connect versus to to self promote, um, and that you know to me like Clubhouse is I mean yes there's self promotional stuff but you know a lot of those rooms to me feel really hollow and it seems to me that social audio as opposed to going on Instagram or even Twitter or something like the level of depth and connection feels 
um, feels different, feels more fulfilling, um, and that I would, I'm wondering if some of the appeal and reason why celebrities do like coming on Clubhouse is because it doesn't feel as empty as just sort of like interacting with their fans on Instagram or their social media. Like, you can't have your social media, media manager go on Clubhouse as you, right? Like, you have to show up as you, whereas the same is not true of, of other social media. So any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a really good, good, good point of view. And you know, I'm new to to all this. I'm I'm not an early adapter. I, I I'm just I didn't think the internet was really going to take off, but actually, here we are. So, uh, I think that there's something just very real, and there's a collaborative nature of Clubhouse, and it's accessible to everybody. And um, I think that that we're hungry. Look, we're 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 we hunger for connection. We we are um, built for connection with other people, and we're tribal, right? So we organize ourselves around common interests and against yeah. common foes, and I think Clubhouse gives us the opportunity to do that. And I think in terms of where we look at traditional media, it has become very polemic, and it has become very polarizing. And, you know, Clubhouse... It, takes out the middleman. We don't have to rely on the producer at Fox or the producer at CNN to pick us. We can just create our own world and our own universe. And I think that that's extraordinarily powerful and beneficial. And I think that particularly in the pandemic when we have been isolated and forced to spend enormous amounts of time with self, that we are hungering for a deeper connection and that we have been very adaptive in terms of looking to technologies to connect us. And um, I just think that it just feels kind of feels like Brooklyn, right? The way that Brooklyn was. Like, it's, it's, We're uh, in Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn still is. Yeah, Brooklyn, still is. Yeah, it's, it's Brooklyn. Clubhouse is the, is the Brooklyn of, of a social media. Brooklyn of the internet, I guess. Yeah, I kind of feel that way. And, um, so, so I think it's a, you know, a real valuable proposition, and I think we need to maintain its integrity. And when it loses its integrity, we're going to find something else. So, um, yeah. So I hear PR agents don't like it though That's too much. So Is that what you well, think, Alex? It's like PR agent nightmare because, like in every other format, you can have them hovering around you like like angels and demons on your shoulders, and you know they can really corral what celebrities say even in like real time. On Clubhouse, it's it's a platform feature wise, which makes it almost impossible for PR agents to keep people from saying stuff, which is basically their whole job. Mm -hmm. And so the ones I know, like the one I know, is terrified of Clubhouse for her clients mm -hmm. because it's just like, oh my God, they could say any stupid thing that I'm trying and being paid lots of money to keep them from saying. I hope that when uh, when Brittany, not if, but when, when Brittany is finally free, I, I hope that she comes on to Clubhouse and has an open conversation, because I think that in particular would be super fascinating, since one of the things about her situation is there's so much skepticism about, is she doing her post? Is someone else doing it? Is it her voice? Is it not? Like, we really don't know. I, I, I yesterday, I, you know, I, I love Courtney Love and I was following her and I, I saw on one of her posts part of it said can you say this like please add this like clearly someone else was writing that for her who just like transcribed what she was saying and it really took me out of the moment because I wanted to believe that she was crafting these posts that she was making these things and then it just like the, you know it's like the man behind the curtain somebody somebody else is just typing away saying you know what do we think Courtney Love should say today But also from like a personal I, brand perspective, 
like the me you hear on Clubhouse is the actual me for reals. And people have heard a lot of us talk, like a lot. And so they're forming an opinion about us that is probably more grounded in the actual us's than they could from any other source. You could do 20 MSNBC interviews and all of them would be edited or so concise and so contained that the real Carlene doesn't necessarily come out. And yet here, people are hearing us interact as the people we actually are for good or ill. Uh, Dr. Carlene, Dr. Carlene, can I give a little mini case study as to what you're talking about? Take one minute. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Um, so, uh, from the reality corner, from the reality TV corner of the world. So, uh, Ebony K. Williams, the first black housewife in the real Housewives of New York franchise in 13 years, uh, has had an amazing season and has come on strong. And, um, she, she had been to our clubhouse room several times and she proactively, she really set them all. She proactively said she was taking a break from social media for three weeks. However, the one thing she broke from that silence was to come into our clubhouse room. This is talking about clubhouse as a different medium than most social media. She broke her social media silence specifically to come into our room after a particularly, uh, after particularly, uh, uh, after a particular episode because she wanted to converse and have a conversation real time with the fans and talk about what was going on. Uh, and her PR rep was there, by the way. Um, so I think that, uh, just back to the clubhouse of it all, um, I think it does allow for people uh, who understand that this is not another it's, it's not another social media platform. You have to act differently on here because the two things it provides are authenticity and transparency. And a lot of people are not ready to handle uh, the weight that comes along with those two things. Thank you for letting me speak again. This is Jim. I'm finished speaking. Those are both weighty things to consider there. They can be amazing in the right hands, and they can be dangerous if you say something off the cuff. So uh, I want to move on to take more questions here. Uh, Steve, looks like you're next. I wanted to see what you had to ask. Yeah, this is uh, such a such a great conversation. It's really nice to, uh, uh, to meet uh, Dr. Uh, Hokemeyer. Or Dr. Paul, I'll say, I'm really enjoying hearing your voice and, and love being here. You know, the the idea of being as as a psychiatrist on this platform has been so interesting. I I came on because I wanted to see how we could help people far and wide through through just speaking, and and it's been awesome. And the access to people of fame has been interesting for me. I was in a room early on and, uh, I, 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 I can limit people at times and, and unfortunately, I guess I, I limited Amber Rose because I didn't know who Amber Rose was at the time. And so she was, she was going on a little bit too long and I, um, uh, I said, well, that's great. And, you know, and, and, and people were back channeling me through Instagram, which I wasn't really checking, going, leave her alone. Let her talk about whatever she wants to talk about. And I uh, noticed how afterwards I, you know, I was like, going, oh, God, I wanted the quote unquote Amber Rose to stay in my room and to blow it up and to do whatever it, it does. And, you know, as a clinician and someone who's trying to help noticing how I got out of my own C 
feet, you know, afterwards. I'm glad I didn't know her, but I, I contacted her afterwards and we spoke a little bit and she was so cool and so ready to just be real. Um, I think that treating her that way probably helped. And so I just, I'd love to hear about how do we as clinicians stay normal with these people that oftentimes get us out of our own uh, best selves? And, and this is Dr. Steve. Thanks a lot. Oh, Dr. Steve, I love I love that question. So, um, you know, I think about that a lot, and occasionally we'll get referrals for people that are like celebrities, but like not somebody in that list of like my idols or like maybe I barely heard about them or maybe they are an NBA star. Like I don't care. <laughs> like that to me, that doesn't have like obviously very impressive, but they're not someone that I have all of those other associations with. Whereas if it was somebody, let's just say, for example, I'll bring her up again, Courtney Love. I don't think that I could be objective in the room with her. I think that my game would be off. I think that I would just let her talk and say what and that would not be helpful. Um, so I do think as clinicians, um, you know, people will say like, oh, my gosh, it's so awesome to treat celebrities. It must be so interesting. But like it's very hard work, uh, very dysfunctional systems. And I think that we have to watch our own tendencies to, to fall prey to the to the celebrity. RJ, did you want to chime in? Yeah. Um, so I noticed that during like COVID and I know we don't want to bring up COVID anymore these days, but. Uh, I noticed that my veil was broken for my parasocial relationships with media figures, and that's been freaking me out. And what you're talking about reminds me exactly of that. As soon as I'm, I, I consume a lot of podcasts and audiobooks because I'm on the computer a lot, and that's just the easiest way to consume the media. And I read an article about parasocial relationships, and I, I wasn't on social media at the time. And now that I'm on social media, it looks like when I look at my feed and see all the people who I listen to all the time, I used to have this almost feeling of a one-way friendship where they were my friend and I wasn't quite their friend because they don't know me. And now the veil is lifted and it is weird. It's weird to have someone talk to me <laughs> as though they're my friend with this intimacy because they're speaking on sometimes intimate subjects. And I've been thinking about this, this whole conversation, you know, there's a lot of people who feel this one way directional relationship, friendship with people and they're a different person. It's, it's weird. It's a weird sensation and uniquely modern. Yeah. And I think too, is like, I guess probably this is true of people that get close to celebrities, like as a therapist or psychiatrist, it's sort of like if you make a, a big meal, you don't really want to eat it. Like to, to me, it's like if I see a celebrity and I have this image of them, that's the image I want. And then if I actually get into it and, and learn about things as a therapist, that is kind of gone for me. And that's like, that's like a loss. Um, so I think that's something to kind of consider as well um, for anyone that's sort of thinks they might be tempted to work with this this population um like do you but, want it sort of i don't want to say ruined for you but like do you want to look behind the curtain michelle oh yeah i was gonna say that but that's so healthy because we need to be dismantling these systems that perpetuate this uh pretend mode about them and for me the only thing that did it was you know i guess someone call it luck but the opportunity to draw closer to these humans and see that they are just suffering and yeah, we we need to dismantle the system that perpetuates this madness. Yeah, um, but one thing that Dr. Paul taught me 
because when we're talking about working with celebrities, I remember one time I went to this home and there's three Picassos in the living room. And I just, that, that it was crazy. And I remember Dr. Paul, I was telling you the story after it happened and you said, wow, that must have really knocked you off your, your center being around kind of that much wealth. And so as a, you know, helper, a practitioner, we really do have to have intentionality about how are we grounding ourselves? How are we centering ourselves? Like, you know, because it, it, the can knock you off your feet. And, you know, it can be a lot to work with this population and this amount of power and this amount of wealth and celebrity because of the narratives and the stories. Um, so, yeah, that was some helpful advice. Hey, that's brilliant conversation. I want to move to our next questioner, Roshnek. Hey, welcome. Thanks for being so patient. Hi, Jeremy, Dr. Carlene, Dr. Owen, everybody up on the stage. Um, I've really, really enjoyed, I've loved this conversation. I think so many important points have been raised. And they really speak not just to celebrity and the power that you were just discussing on the stage, but to every single one of us, because each one of us within our own sphere isn't, has an influence, is an influencer. So to varying degrees, the things that are going on here that we're discussing are relevant to each person's life. And so, you know, there's, there's several dimensions. There's a lot of dimensions to celebrity, right? There are many dimensions to celebrity. There's a professional dimension, right, where the people who say, I want to be a celebrity, I want to be famous, I want you know, to have this extreme success. And they use those variables as tools to gain that success. But then there's a personal and biological level as well, right? So there's, personally, there's this existent personality. That's what, what you were talking about earlier. Like, do you bring in narcissists or do you create them, right? And it's uh, the idea that narcissism is uh, genetically or uh, is heritable, has been shown, I think, to have a, um, is on a scale of 0.64 and, um, and, but it is epigenetic and the environment brings it up. But then do you bring those people in who are already predisposed or who are already exhibiting that? And then you play on that, right? So that has, that comes with its strengths and weaknesses when you come in with a particular existing personality, because then you could be someone like, I don't know, Robert Redford or Paul Newman, who managed to keep their stability and their private lives private and still be really powerful and still be very successful. So it really depends on that existent underlying personality. But ultimately, it always comes back down to the brain and the biology, right? Because we are biological entities. And the brain can't discriminate, really, between reality and fantasy. We know that. We go to the movies and we, like, scream at the screen, don't go in there, or we laugh or we cry. It's suspended disbelief. And until we pull ourselves out of it, then we are absolutely caught up with it. Same as when we're in a situation and maybe we use our metacognition in order to be able to then witness what's going on and be able to guide it instead of it guiding us. So ultimately what it comes down to is we are all so fearful of being judged. Rejection is worse than death. The number one fear people have is a fear of public speaking because they'd rather die than that. Because if you're rejected, it sort of has its roots in our evolutionary history. You'd be thrown out of the tribe and then you won't survive. And so these feelings of worth that you get when you're a celebrity are so binary. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's a really powerful 
thing so far as I'm getting this success and I'm going to be all bravado and cocky about it and I, I feel really stable. I can, like you were saying, doctor, I'll just get another doctor. But on the other hand, there's this deep-seated fear that you could lose all of that in a minute. And there are those people in that circle, in that environment that will feed that fear so that they can continue to control you. And I think that is a really important factor to think about. And this binariness and the, the separation of what we do from who we are. Because if you are then judged negatively, it's, it speaks to your shame, which is a toxic emotion, which isn't what I did. It's I am not worthy. If I don't look like this, I'm rejected. If I don't act like this, I'm rejected. If I don't, whatever. And, and then that comes to the idea of how does someone like Brittany, to bring it back home, how does someone like Brittany ended up where she did versus someone like Brooke Shields managed to get out? in one piece and have a healthy life and a marriage and kids and so on and so forth. Rushnik, I think that, that's a really interesting question. Thank you for leaving with that. Oh, and I see you're unmuted here and I wanted to, to give the stage to you for a moment here. So as a, as a failure of mentalizing, I have a mute button on my mic pre and when I was clicking mute unmute on the thing, it was like echoing. So I don't actually have anything to say about it. I thought it was a great comment. No worries. I have, I have Dr. Carlane. I want to give it to you then. You know, I think uh, first, I think regarding, I think Brooke, so Brooke Shields, it's interesting you bring her up. Um, I know that she's been very open about her struggles with postpartum depression. And I think done a lot uh, in terms of the, the power of a celebrity to do good, uh, the power of celebrities to get people to get to help, um, you know, her, her book on this subject and, and kind of her, you know, making the talk show circuit and everything I know has helped, you know, many mothers get to, to the care they need. So I always really like to see when celebrities do that. Um, it takes a lot of a lot of bravery to do. Um, you know, we, we're seeing that with the Olympics. Uh, you know, I understand uh, Naomi Osaka today is, you know, carrying the torch and all that. Like, that's that's what we want to see kind of more of. Um, and I think celebrities sort of making meaning of their experiences. That's what we want for our, all of our patients is to be able to, like, integrate their lives in, in this way. Um, I know we're going to go to me and Owen and, and just sort of reflect for a minute. But I did want to just ask you something Um you know, in our opening segment, Owen played a number of different sounds, one of which was a very early clip uh, found on YouTube of, of you actually playing uh, chopsticks with, with Britney very early in the MTV studios. Um, and it was just such a such an innocent clip. And it seemed so far from from where we are now. Um, and I, I was reading that she seemed to really like you and, and gravitate towards you and, and um, you know, seek you out for things. And I just was wondering if you could maybe reflect on on. Well, first of all, is that true? And like why that might be that celebrities felt really at ease around you? Yeah, it was it was it was really nice to feel like she would confide in me and have confidence in in the way that I would be about her. I mean, she would request me to be her interviewer every time there was an opportunity to interview at MTV. So it was a really nice relationship that we had. And, and I think it was based on my intention for our interviews. I was always really wanting to uh, celebrate the good and, and highlight what was what was exceptional and, and, and positive. And, you know, that's just always been where I come from. And I'm not the type to throw in a, a gotcha question, you know, or, or try to uh, do anything other than uh, highlight what is inspiring 
that's going on there. So, so that's, I think, why she resonated with me as an interviewer. Some speculate that she had a little crush on me, but that I, I can't, I can't confirm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it was always, Positive. it was always sweet. It was always sweet with her. And, and, you know, I went on tour with her at one point uh, for the Onyx hotel tour. Uh, there was a Showtime special and she requested me as the host for that. And, uh, so I, I got to hang out with her on her tour bus and, I had all kinds of time with her and, and it was, it was very sweet and, and, and very wholesome. I mean, there was, there was one thing I could probably point to and you could probably notice it in that segment where we were playing piano. I mean, it was almost as if, um, it was like a little kid. Like she was just had this like real childlike approach and, and, um, you know, you could find another interview though where, you know, she had some beef with Christina Aguilera and, and it was a bit edgy when she was sharing. And so I think there was, there was a different Britney that we were dealing with at that point, uh, that hadn't gone through the ringer quite like we've seen in the, in the recent years. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it was, I was always really happy to talk with her. She's always such a real present, very caring human being as far as I could tell. And, uh, and, and of course you could debate, you know, maybe that was presentational, but it, it really seemed authentic to me. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, when, when we think of therapists working with celebrities as well, I feel like probably a number of the qualities that you have would be shared by folks like Dr. Paul, who work really well with these individuals and, and like, look at the, look at their strengths and kind of meet them where they're at and, and aren't looking to sort of use them in a certain way so that's really neat to see Owen, oh, did you want to what are your thoughts on all this oh there it is again it's very cute good times <laughs> the, the the innocent days of past yeah yeah i mean yeah. and that was by the way that was when when she was taking us through her studio and and i just saw the piano across the room and i'd heard that she actually played a little piano and i asked her to just impromptu play for us and she did and and it was really sweet it really is it's that those moments i think that that were sustaining for her i imagine i don't know but when she actually got to play or sing or perform and those seem at least back back when unforced well she still likes to do that right i mean a she lot does. of her, her yeah. videos now are, are just sort of this freeform dancing which i think um when I when I've showed those to some people sort of unfamiliar with the case, some people say, oh, these videos, they look weird. You know, she looks crazy, you know, strange eyes, strange movements. Others, though, have said, you know, those she looks like real. She looks like it could be my friend dancing. Right. She there was something sort of just uh, quite innocent about those those things. So, you know, I, I guess I'm I'm hoping that we can see kind of more of that from her and from other celebrities where they don't feel like they need to put on such a such a show and, and such a manufactured image and to bring it back to clubhouse i think this is a place where people could do it right because they could talk and it doesn't matter if their hair makeup's done like they can just kind of come on and be real people and maybe steve uh, won't recognize them and will cut them off and that will be a really good like learning experience for for them so oh and what do you think so I'm, I'm curious you had kind of your the, a pretty close brush with celebrity-ishness this week you had like 50,000 views by now on the interview you did on MSNBC. 
what the hell was that like? Uh, yes, thank you. So, um, yeah, I was, um, I, I guess I was tapped to be on MSNBC's Morning Joe to talk about conservatorship and, and Brittany, because that's something I have quite a bit of experience with, with the folks I work with. Um, and I think Dr. Paul's written about this as well, like in like a keep cable news appearance or something like you feel like on top of the world. Like um, I remember like they, they get a car for you and, and like my doorman open the door for me. He doesn't usually do that. He just sits at the desk. But like somehow this car signaled that I was like more important that day and the door should be opened for me. Um, and, you know, it's this this experience where all these people you haven't heard from in years come out of the come out of the woodwork. And that feels very good. I think that feels very intoxicating. And I can't imagine what that's like if that's your every single day. Um, and then, you know, I went on with my day. And then at the end of the day, I took the ferry home. And I had this thought in my head as I was boarding the ferry, like, well, these people, they don't they don't know what I did this morning. They, you know, they don't know that I did this cool thing and that I, I was on TV, right? And that, that um, it's like silly. It's foolish. But, like, that's the mind just finds that stuff so uh, so intoxicating. And then the next day, it was like, Womp womp, you know, no no TV. Um, a couple of people even joked, like, what TV show you're going to be on today? And that I think you just kind of want more and more and more. And that's like, you know, as fragile powers, why having everything is never enough. Like, I don't know. It's cool. I'm glad to do it. But it it, it is feels a bit more hollow. Um, so do you, I mean, the question for me is like, do you understand me and my like, you know, I'm, I've been a performer. I've been a musician all my whole life. And you kind of ripped on me for it uh, and still do. <laughs> And like, yeah, that's true. Does it make more sense to you now that you want to be famous, or that Not you that I want to be famous? <laughs> but that, that getting up in front of a crowd and doing a thing uh, make like there's value to that. Well, I think everyone on some level, and this gets to what Roshnik was saying, like everyone likes it if, you, if if you do something, if you put something into the universe and people say, I like that, you know, that moved me, particularly if they're not someone you know, right? I think that's when you sort of like with our, you know, our Substack, like people signing up that we know is great, but there's a different feeling when people sign up that you have no idea who they are. That that level feels special, and I feel like with your podcasts too. Like it's one thing if you know your mother, your cousin, your your employees listen to it, but when you have random people, it just I don't know. It it, it definitely strokes the ego in a certain way. That's yeah. uh, the problem is the, this is Steve. The problem is Carlene is that you know Owen. <laughs> and, yes, and it's, it's it's the knowing of all of the person. We don't get to project as much of what we believe we could be into that person who we don't know. So I love the the back and forth between the two of you. It is it has been sweet to watch. <laughs> and, and through, I'm I'm telling you because I have parts of me that are that are Owen, as you know, and it's it's just great to watch from afar instead of being in the hot seat. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, no, I mean, I think with, with Owen, it's, it's funny. When I first met him, I remember he sent me his songs. And if you first meet Owen, he'll probably send you his songs, uh, just so you know. And I really, like, really, really liked them, and I was very into them. And now I, I don't I don't really like to listen. <laughs> but and, I, it's not because they're bad. It just <laughs> it feels different to me, right? It feels different. And, and that's, that's a weird thing. And then to your point, uh, Steve, about, like, me and Owen are married. People sort of start to know that now. There's people that will, like, comment on our relationship now. Like, they'll be like, I like this or that about what you do, or, you know, you have this or that. And I don't know them, and they know all about my relationship, and that's never <laughs> happened before. And it's fine, but it's um, 
the joy that the audience more aware gets of it. watching you rip on me it, is the thing that makes it so much better than just you ripping on me in private. So, oh, and I have they, a question. They, oh, they, they see what they want to see, and right. that's that's what I'm saying. It's and so relatable. It's that piece of being on this. On this uh, uh, on this app, it's so interesting. I, I know Caduce from from the Playa, and I I didn't know who he was until he was just a cool guy that gave great hugs out in the dust. <laughs> you went to Burning Man? See, I didn't know that. That's awesome. He went to Burning Man. Oh yeah, <laughs> last the last five years up until they they stopped. But you know, it's the the knowing people before they you know you quote unquote know what the what society knows is is what's awesome. Like when when Quidus was hugging you in the playa, he didn't know you were a big deal yet. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, right. Steve was just a charming guy with a lot of great jokes. He's, still he's is, still us. is. But to to that point though, like Clubhouse almost like it becomes like a little bit Your of like a reality TV. Time. <laughs> I just want to say, oh, I think I we have our own that. reality TV that. here, and now Owen really that. wants to play his song. This so, Owen, we have the whole conceit. I'm gonna play a pro- so, okay. So, the all right, Owen, was, play your song. Like, I'm going to make a song for a theoretical sponsor who we don't actually have, but I think this week, based on last week, me not being able to log into my computer, I decided to do the song in honor of LastPass. So, in case LastPass is listening, here we go. Oh, no, not wrong one. There are actually two LastPass versions. Oh, I wasn't supposed to remember Every single password Oh, of them in one place would be nice But what product did exist Show me how you want to store my passwords, RJ How can it my memories kill me and now I must confess I thought I could remember them all When I'm out with LastPass I lose my mind Give me a massive login Two factor one more time I did that this morning because I did a first version. Carly, and it's like, no, you have to do it to Brittany. I'm like, you guys have to record every track of that in like 15 minutes. She's like, yep. <laughs> RJ, what did you think about that? I saw you you got a little shout out in the lyrics there. Well, I just want to say you're welcome, Owen. You know, appreciate <laughs> you, man. Up for Thanks for doing that. You know, good work. <laughs> and that was an awesome song. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't. I didn't ever imagine that two-factor authentication would make its way into a, a Britney Spears uh, parody song. So I will credit you that that, that was pretty good. Britney Britney Sphere. All right, uh, Jeremy, you want to wrap this up for us? Yeah, definitely. Hey everyone, it's Jeremy Fox again, your in-house Sphere therapist and MC, and you've just joined us today in the Sphere Club for New Frontiers the clubhouse creator first show for pioneers on the frontiers of the mind and the media. Sphere is the shape of what's next in mental health. And to keep up with us, why not? 
and enter for a chance to win your own copy of Fragile Power, here by Dr. Paul, text the word JOIN to AskSphere.club. If you like the chic Sphere Club profile picture frames you see our panel sporting today, you can text PTR to AskSphere.club. We recorded today, so stay tuned for a podcast and recap of the episode. See you next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, or whatever time that is where you are in the world. So next week, we're switching gears a little bit, and we're going to focus on accessibility and inclusivity online with the Omnium Circus, which is an online virtual circus that embraces neurodiversity and individuals with disability as a great example of how to do it well. You can also catch the Frontier Psychiatrist and Friends on Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time or wherever you are um, at that time for the AMA show. Okay, you can ask them anything. This week, they'll discuss helping those who have a loved one with mental illness. And I want to just remind everyone here to follow the moderators on stage for more content like this that really addresses difficult issues, but with illuminating clinical insights. And to please, of course, follow the Sphere Club, and you'll get these amazing conversations, um, quite a few each week, actually. So with that, we will sign off. Except I'm actually going to play the sign-out music being of course. our last pass song. Another last pass song? Where's the uh, where's the closing music? Oh, this is the good one I did. This is closing music. I'm sorry. All right, I'm leaving. <laughs> Bye. Passwords in just one place. It's really stressful to lose them constantly. If only I had last past last week, I could have known how to log in to my computer so I could do my clubhouse show without using only my phone I believe it's true that there are passwords in my phone I want to know where they are all stored last pass lets me remember
an absolute banger of a song, Owen. Thank you for regaling us with that. 